0: The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani.
1: Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani,
2: call Jacob
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinske. Fantastic guest today. It is Frank E. Flowers and the great Terrence Winter, who are the co writers of Bob Marley One Love, which is a worldwide box office hit. Sue and I both saw the movie yesterday. I absolutely uh, loved it, Sue. What was your reaction? Uh,
2: I, it was great. I mean, I have been a Bob Marley fan my entire life. and You know, when I was like in high school, I mean, that it was, it was Bob Marley. It was Jimmy Cliff. It was Peter Tosh. Um, you know, so, so that part, unbelievable. And, you know, I always stay till the end of a movie more often than, than not I do because of the credits, but I could not leave the theater because they played so much of his songs that I mean, I was. Like, kind of chair dancing a little bit, I have to admit.
0: A lot of people in my theater were chair dancing, especially when they got One Love is the last song they play over the credits. And I'm like, that's that's the Marley song for me. That, and what is the Marley song for you? I love Jammin' and I love One Love.
2: I would probably have to say One Love. Or, no, Redemption Song, I would say. Oh,
0: Redemption Song's great, yeah. You hear all of them. And then the cool thing about the credits, too, is that they show real clips of the real Bob Marley. And you can Mm -hmm. see, by the way, how much, uh, the lead actor Kingsley Benadere has just, I mean, nailed, nailed, got his essence, got Mm -hmm. his essence. And also looks like him. The accent is perfect. I mean, I just, I I love the movie and I love so many people are seeing it. Um, I want to remind everybody, Sue, Mm
2: -hmm. that,
0: uh, First of all, we got brand new studio stuff, right? We got new microphones. We got new lights, all that stuff. Cause you know, we're going to mm-hmm. be doing this for a long time. And if you are watching right now on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button and uh, smash the like button while you're there. That's what the kids <laughs> say. They say smash the like button. Really? Yes. That's an smash. actual thing.
2: Smash, Not drop. like Drop. Someone, I don't like drop. I don't like like, oh yeah, this is dropping. You know, it's like, it's premiering. It's coming on, you know, I'm I'm a little too old school. I I can't say that something dropped.
0: Yeah, I, see, I like dropped. I like I dropped. Don't to.
2: You know, this um, is dropping. That's dropping.
0: Yeah, I, I see that. Yes, I see that. <laughs> uh, by the way, if you're uh, listening right now on Apple or Spotify, subscribe to the show and leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. It's awesome when you do that, too. So, Sue, you started the year in a state of sobriety and it's not because you have any problem or anything you just decided you were going to go sober for a while where are you on that
2: okay so december 27th i stopped drinking and smoking weed okay Okay? and on our last show i told everybody that i had to um say goodbye to my dog of 17 years yes so the day we did that um we came home. We t- Well, we I, I I couldn't come right home, so we took a walk on the beach, and we we were just out of the house. And, and right when Tom was making dinner, I saw that he had poured a scotch on the rocks. Yep. And I said, I'm going to have one, too. I need a scotch on the rocks. So I had a drink, first drink since the 27th of December, yep. and that was it. So I haven't had a drink since, and I don't want to have a drink since. I just needed it so... Do I need to like, do I get a free pass on that?
0: Because oh, you of get the a free situation.
2: Pass. So I don't know. It to was start- a toast to Tucker. Yeah. So I, do I have to start all over again and say, like, now, no? Do I, I no, get to let's keep ignore the sobriety it. since the yeah. 27th? Okay.
0: Absolutely. Keep the sobriety. Um, okay. I'm, I'm doing it too. No, I'm not.
2: No, you're not. So no. speaking of Tucker, okay. So Tucker was on medication and we got auto ships. From this company in Boston. Okay. Okay. So on Saturday. I sent them a text. Which I, it was a chain. So, you know, it was, you know, from past, from previous confirmations about the prescription. Right. Letting them know that we're not going to need them anymore because we had to say goodbye to our dog. Yeah. So I, uh, so that was on Saturday. Um. I don't, you know, hear anything from them. So I figure, okay, well, they're probably just not going to send it. And they're not saying anything. I get. An email this morning from the company telling me that, um, thank you for your order. You know, it was shipped today or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. So I call them and I let them know that um, I sent an email canceling the order and the reason why. And um, the woman says to me, just like no emotion at all. I told her that my dog died. Yeah. No emotion. No, like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss or whatever. She said, Okay, I'll try to see if I can get you a reimbursement. I said, Well, try? I said, You're gonna try to get me a reimbursement? I said, No, I demand a reimbursement. My dog died. So that's why we don't need the pills. So she's like, Oh, okay, okay, uh, yeah, we'll we'll get you a reimbursement. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Nothing. Even after that, no sense. Nothing. Nothing. So Me knowing me the way you know me, oh, yeah, I sent an email. Oh, god, telling them how just telling them you love a
0: great confrontation, don't you?
2: You No, just they have to know, (laughs) telling them how disappointed I was, yes, and that um, they never got in touch with me, and the fact that the representative, like, no, no, like, I'm sorry for you know, no condolence, right? Right, and then (laughs) I said. Just to give you an idea of doing the right thing, I said, I used to get my prescriptions from this place, Chewy, and when I canceled because my other dog passed away, they sent me a card with flowers, and I let them know that.
0: Yeah. Well, it could have been some customer rep in Pakistan or something.
2: She was not. She was American. Yeah, was she? And even if she was from Pakistan, they don't have emotion. <laughs> that's so insulting to Pakistanis. Well,
0: I mean, so you know no, how they some do that. woman
2: in China. <laughs> uh,
0: that's terrible. That's terrible. Anyway, well, I'm glad. Anyway. I'm glad you had a good confrontation out of it. I said so, well, we were at your house earlier this week, and I said afterwards, "Boy, Sue likes a good confrontation. You love a good confrontation. I am so I, non-confrontational."
2: I like to right a wrong and I like to teach someone a lesson.
0: Yes. And I like to keep my head down and (laughs) ignore everything because I don't want a con. Now what happens though is, so I don't have any confrontations, right? I mean, at work, I have no confrontation, nothing. But then all of a sudden when I have one, it's like 10 confrontations wrapped into one. Like I go so over the top in the confrontation. Like I blew up at Chris Morales a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, you motherfucker, you. D- <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I, then the next day it was fine. But it's like, because I was so pissed off for such a long time. And then finally the dam broke and I was like, bam.
2: Well, what did you learn from that? That maybe you need to express how you feel in the moment so you don't pile them all together and then implode on somebody.
0: Yeah, I really it's did, and it's, better, and it's
2: good for you too. You think so? Yeah.
0: I just I find it so much easier to just float through life and, and not. But
2: but but you know I, I, I and mean, I didn't do it with any kind of anger. I just you know I just I just wanted to let them know that I was upset that I got no reaction. I mean, if, if for for all its intents and purposes, it was like I was returning a shirt right right <laughs> you know what i mean i mean just the fact that they had no reaction to it it just like i i you know like on facebook i posted a picture of tucker and i told a little yeah, bit right. of a story of how we got him and there are people that are friends that are friends of friends that aren't like you know it's like a six degrees of separation type of friendship which we mostly have on on facebook and uh these people were like, "Oh God, my heart goes out to you, and you know, so sorry about your dog." And you know, I, I I think that most people in life have had a this experience. Yeah. So yeah. it's and they work for a pet company. <laughs> so yeah, that's just, the
0: weird part. We're in the business of pets.
2: Yeah, so it wasn't f- like it wasn't like you know the my you know my the, my my pants were too short or you know yeah, the right. wrong waist size. You know it was just ridiculous anyway so Speaking I just what,
0: you you I'm wearing a cardigan sweater today and you said you yes. want no I think this is a very stylish sweater
2: it is it you know it is a little old school and I'm not you know kind of not used to you wearing a cardigan so it reminds me of it's got a little madmanish you know oh, kind of yeah. feel to it yeah and I like also that. a little uh, father knows best
0: a little <laughs> a little Mr Rogers <laughs> Put on my but sweater. no, it
2: looks
0: good. It looks good. So I'm working really hard. This is a big talk at uh, at 710 that I am all of a sudden a grown-up, that I pay attention to what I wear every day and I am developing a style um which I've never had before. I've always looked like an absolute slob. Um and Colin Coward once said, uh you look like a flood victim. Uh Jim Lampley once told me that uh i look like an unmade bed for all those years <laughs> i was just a total sl- and now i've tightened up and i've got a sense of style and a sense of fashion that i'm developing
2: i have to find a picture of you that i took when we were doing the radio show in new york oh, over 20 years talk ago. about a slob i was such a you slob when s- i did such that. such a slob i mean you would wear like an oversized sweatshirt your pants were baggy You're even like your shoelaces were untied. I mean, (laughs) you really were a schlump. I had uh, no
0: self respect in those days.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, so I really appreciate and love the fact that you have found this um, fashion uh, style. Style. uh, And, and I think it it suits you. And um, with your white hair, it's, it's, it's kind of a very distinguished um, setting. Yeah. Of, of, of representation. Yeah, nice. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, like I think the last show, I mentioned that I really liked your shirt. And I, I kind of knew, I had a feeling that your shirt was was where your shirt was from. And you said it was from Untucket. It. Oh,
0: it's from Untucket. It. I've reached out to Untucket. I have so many Untucket clothes. And I'm like, they'd be a great sponsor for the podcast. They'd be great absolutely. on the radio. I mean, all that stuff. And I can't get through to anybody at Untucket.
2: You know, we, we have to really pursue it because I wear Untucket shirts. Tom wears untuck. I always buy him tucket shirts for his birthday and Christmas. And it's the such women's a great line brand. is great, too. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's yeah. such a great brand. Um, okay. And I'm also, by the way, you know what hair product I use? No. A product called Suavecito. Um, it's uh, from Santa Ana. And this is another one that I've reached out to, I'm like, this is a great story. These three guys started this company in Santa Ana and it's grown. And I'm like, you know, I, I use the product. I, it, I kind of like working with the products that I use. Like for example, at the radio station, I never take an endorsement unless I really feel good about it. So for example, I did the, I'm the Southern California Hyundai dealers guy. I drive out, I went out and got a Hyundai, love it. Um, Mm -hmm. L.A. County Department of Mental Health, obviously. I've got uh, personal experience in that. Uh, Jacob Marani, I've used him, uh, sponsor of this podcast. I was in an accident. Jacob showed up, helped me take pictures, all that kind of stuff. Um, So I only like doing endorsements for stuff. So the the goals here are I want a sponsorship with Untucket. I want a sponsorship with Suavecito. And I want a sponsorship with Culture Pop Soda soda yes and i found a contact for the guy that's sort of the marketing guy for culture pop soda
2: well because i told you i got in touch with the guy who created the soda yes president of the company and he was like all in let's talk and then i i emailed him a couple of times and he never responded
0: i'm going to close this deal i'm going to close this deal yeah, right. or open open the business, as we say. So, um, all right. So there is Deadline does this thing uh, where they ask actors and directors, what lit their fuse? Uh, in other words, what was the, the movie that made you a movie fan for life? And I, I pulled up an example. The Paul Giamatti one is out right now. And he says... It's Dennis Hopper in blue velvet that lit his uh, fuse. I will say for that movie, absolutely fantastic movie. Uh, David Lynch, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it is one of the great films ever made. And uh, the, the Hopper character with the... The mask, yeah. he's mm-hmm. like inhaling, I think, nitrous uh, while he's doing all this crazy stuff. I, I just think that's a brilliant film. And I wrote an entire term paper on it when I was at Bowling Green, mm. uh, for when I was getting my Bachelor of Liberal Studies. There's a hardcore degree. And uh, <laughs> I wrote, and every shot in that movie contributes to the theme of the movie. There is nothing wasted. Um, I, I think David Lynch, I've tried to get him on the show a bunch of times. He's... An absolute genius. I think one of the great living filmmakers makers. I love Mulholland Drive. That's another one that I love for him. But if I put that to you, what lit your fuse? What was the movie that made you a movie fan for life?
2: Well, you know, it's kind of tricky because if I think back on when I was a little kid. Because we went to, my parents took us to the movies a lot when we were kids. So when I was in elementary school, my three brothers went to summer camp. So those summers, my parents took us to this theater out in Long Island called the Syosset Theater. And it had a bigger screen. It had, I don't know if it was surround sound back then, but it wasn't in the regular theaters in my neighborhood. Right. And we went to see a lot of big movies. So like, I have to say that probably Mary Poppins Mary as a Poppins. kid
0: yeah.
2: um, was a significant movie from my childhood. But when I got a little bit older, when I was a teenager and I probably I'm trying to think if I was in high school or junior high school when the last picture show came out. Oh, so that, good. That to me defined my love of film because it was black and white. You know, there weren't black and white films of my generation. Um, The story of this small town, you know, the football team. You know, I went to all the football games when I was a kid because my high school and junior high school had championship football teams. They went state. So um, that was a big part of my growing up. Just hanging out with a group, you know, um, having sex for the first time. Yeah. so, uh, and it's, it, it, you know, the acting was amazing. The direction amazing. was amazing. And it's probably the movie that I've seen the most, aside from The Godfather, it's probably the movie that I've seen the most times. So that was really a, a, a real defining moment in my semi-adult life.
0: So I got to interview Peter Bogdanovich, the director of Last Picture Show, probably five times. Mm. He was such an interesting guy and such a fantastic Mm -hmm. storyteller. And he tells a story from that movie. Um, Cloris Leachman won Best Supporting Actress. She won the Oscar for that movie. And Cloris Leachman did the scene, the the big scene for her. And she said, I want to do it again. I needed another take. And Bogdanovich said, absolutely not. That take is what's going to win you the Academy Award. And so they only did one take of her big scene because Bogdanovich said, you've done enough. You're going to win the Oscar. Trust me, you nailed it. Um, I always thought that was a fascinating story.
2: And that was the scene with Timothy Bottoms, who she was yes. having an affair with. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. Mm. Uh, I later, Cloris Leach, is Cloris Leachman still alive? No. is she passed away?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What's your degree of certainty?
2: Oh, I'm, 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 I could say probably a hundred percent, but let, let <laughs> me it look 100%? it up well, I don't want to get that wrong, but I'm almost positive. She passed away a couple of years ago or last year. So, um, Leachman. in the, yes, she died in, uh, 21.
0: Okay. Well, God bless her. She, um, my, uh, ex partner used to manage the movie theaters that were located where CAA is now. Do
2: you Mm-mm. remember
0: the Schubert theater was there? And then Mm -hmm. there was a big Cineplex Odeon Theater. So I was there one day and Cloris Leachman walked to the box office. Actually, no, just walked in the door. And everybody's like, no, you need a ticket. You need a ticket. And she believed that because she was Cloris Leachman, she was entitled to see any movie that she wanted at no price whatsoever. Oh, wow. She was throwing her weight around. And honestly... I think I think my ex-partner did let her go in cuz she's Cloris leachman but I've never seen that. I was there one time when Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman came to that theater. And Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman bought tickets for everybody who was in line and oh, bought oh, concessions oh. for everybody that was in the lobby. Aww. Uh Danny DeVito just said all the popcorn's on me. I was like so damn cool. So Last damn act. cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he yeah. Uh- they they certainly never worked for the uh, the dog prescription place. No, they never did.
0: <laughs> never did. So um, all right. So the movie for me, and I could say Jaws because I I love Jaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and it I think it changed movies forever. It was the first blockbuster, and after that we saw blockbuster after blockbuster. But the movie that did it for me was China Syndrome. Do you remember oh, the movie wow. China Syndrome? Absolutely,
2: sure, sure. So
0: it was like maybe 77 or so. I was probably 15 or probably 16 years old. And I saw China mm-hmm. Syndrome. And Jane Fonda, Michael Douglas, Jack Lemmon. And the thing that made it really powerful for me was that the Three Mile Island meltdown happened at about the same time.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: I, for me, the movie felt prophetic they were having a meltdown in the china syndrome and they there was this actually going on at three mile island so mm-hmm. for for me there was like a connection between that movie and what was happening in life so that's the movie it's an odd one to pick it was nominated for a bunch of academy awards um, and i don't i don't know that it won anything uh, but i think jane fonda was nominated i'm pretty uh, jack lemon was definitely nominated um but a great movie and that's that's the one that sort of as as they say on deadline lit my fuse oh
2: okay and yeah. well yeah and it actually lit a fuse
0: yes it did um i in fact when i was uh, when i was young before i was driving i would trick my mom to go to movies like i would say this is a really good movie it's so good it stars shirley McLean. um and my mom loved shirley McLean. and we'd get there and it would be some Independent, you know, it'd be like the trip to Bountiful with Jared, Geraldine Page or anything. But my mom, I tricked her with Cheryl, Shirley McLean. That's what got her into the theaters. It's a tearjerker. It stars Shirley McLean. You're gonna love it. Then you get there, it's some graphic, brutal picture, and she's like, "Why am I even here? When is <laughs> Shirley McLean coming on the screen?" <laughs> so that was the ongoing joke in my uh, in my family. All um, right, let's very get to crafty. it. Yeah, Alrighty. yeah. let's get to it. Our guests today are the co-writers of the worldwide box office hit Bob Marley, One Love. Frank E. Flowers is an award-winning filmmaker. He was a BAFTA nominee for co-writing the film Metro Manila. He went on to write shooting stars about the teenage years of NBA legend LeBron James. Meanwhile, Terrence Winter was an Academy Award nominee for the screenplay of The Wolf of Wall Street. He was also executive producer and writer on The Sopranos, and he created the legendary HBO series Boardwalk Empire. Frank, Terrence, thanks so much for doing this. We really, really appreciate it.
1: Very happy to be here. Thanks for having us.
3: Absolutely,
0: so, it's incredible. So we both saw the movie yesterday, and uh, I was blown. I've always been a huge uh, Bob Marley fan. I know Sue's a huge Bob Marley fan. So this was just in my mind an absolute home run, uh, and obviously gigantic box office hit. So congratulations
1: on that. Great, thanks. Great talking to you. Bye.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right it's right it's down from here my friends
1: right. yeah <laughs> thank so, you so much yeah we, we couldn't be uh we couldn't be happier with the way audiences are responding and and obviously the fact that it's a a business success is not so bad either but uh I think I speak for both of us when I say you know getting that message out uh you know Bob Marley's message particularly, in the ties we live in uh is great and it's clearly uh resonating with people.
0: Yes. So I'm curious from you Frank kind of to start. You were born in the Caribbean. Um yes, so sir. before you started the movie, what was your connection to Bob Marley and what did he mean
3: in in your life? Well, you know, again, in the Caribbean Bob is you know, he's an icon. He's the music that you grew up with. He's ubiquitous with you know, celebrations and and you know, culture. And so Tackling this story, you know, from a cinematic perspective, it, it you know, there was so much on it. There was, you know, this is a lifelong dream for me. This is something I pitched on almost 20 years ago when it was with a different creative team. It wasn't the right time. I wasn't the right person. You know, it, it didn't come together. But to be able to sit in Ziggy's living room, Ziggy Marley, who is the maestro of this entire process, it, it's, it's every Caribbean boy's dream, right, to sit with the Marley family, to be to be ingratiated to that process, to, to, again, to see the humility, the love, the thoughtfulness that they put into every aspect. Um, again, it was, it was incredible. It, it, it's a dream come true.
0: And then Terrence, kind of same question for you. I think you were probably a teenager in Brooklyn when uh, Bob Marley uh, released Exodus. What, when did that get on your radio radar? Were you always a Marley fan? How'd that work?
1: Yeah, I think somewhere in the late '70s when I started discovering uh, punk rock, it was it was really like Sex Pistols, Clash, and Bob Marley all in the same year and a half period, probably. Any uh, yeah, anything that was uh, was new and different, I was interested in. So always been a huge music fan, and always and benefited from being the fifth child you know the youngest child uh you know who got just got brought up on rock and roll even you know my my oldest sister's 14 years older so i was just lucky to hear rock and roll from its inception all the way up so i was always looking for new stuff so bob marley was absolutely on my radar uh pretty early on uh and uh yeah i mean it was just it's it was just he was just so cool and i mean i just remember seeing him on uh, the cover of rolling stone and it's like wow, who's that guy? Not a lot of guys in Brooklyn look like that in 1978. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but they do now. <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: yeah. So I, I wanted to talk to you guys about the whole process of writing this. Um, you know, you, his his wife and his and his kids were involved, and you, what was the experience of working with his family creatively? Because they were producers on the project, and I would think more often than not when you're working with producers, they're not so personally uh, attached in this way to the project. So what was that like working with them?
1: I'll let Frankie, Frankie uh, had known Ziggy first, so I'll let him.
3: uh, Yeah, you know, I know Ziggy for for a long time and I directed music video for him. And, you know, when we were able to talk, you know, I, I speak Patois, so we were able to speak very freely. And the thing about this project, I think from the beginning that was really special was Ziggy really wanted to be about a message as much as it was about a man. So in a typical biopic, you're looking for, you know, what's this moment, what's that moment, how I connect, you know, the cradle to the grave and the story of his life. But this, you know, like Bob, the man was almost less important than the message that he was pursuing. And that's what made a unique situation. That's what made it comfortable to sit in the living room because we weren't just talking about Ziggy's dad, right? We weren't just talking about Miss Rita's husband. We were talking about a man on a mission, a man who had this consciousness and this desire to bring his philosophy, this one love idea, this connection to God, this deep you know spiritual and you know ideological vibe to the world and and that again that allowed it to transcend just us talking about people or the ins and outs of a man right and and that's what i think was very unique and interesting about this process
1: Yeah, it was also a great luxury to have somebody who knew every detail of the story and and knew exactly the type of uh film they wanted so you know sometimes you know you work with producers who aren't as involved as you said and and that could be Good in its own way, but because this was so specific and because we really wanted to stick the Lanny here, it's Bob Marley after all, uh, to have the family there guiding us uh, at every step. I mean, just, and also just incredible access to. You know, the real people who knew him and loved him and uh, sitting in Ziggy's living room again, watching footage that has never been seen before and listening to interviews and recordings that have never been listened to. It was just really more than we, yeah, we kind of had to pinch ourselves uh, going in there every day. It was pretty great.
2: Is, is there, was there any aspect of Bob's life that didn't make the film because you didn't have the time to explore that?
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know you know the, the later part I mean obviously you know the sad the very sad ending obviously uh, the tragic you know uh illness and death his his uh return to Africa or his return his trip to Africa uh you know something that was really powerful but um you know ultimately I think mean, I think the movie tells you what it wants to be uh and again this was really about the message and I think we you know when we felt we got it there Some of the other stuff, obviously enormously interesting and powerful in its own way, but not necessary for this story. And, uh, you know, again, that that was also obviously, you know, our director, uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green, um, you know, ultimately decides the shape of this thing. But I think we had kind of arrived there by a couple of drafts in, I, I believe. Yeah. And, so and I think it's, there's also
3: a, sorry, please. go. No, please go ahead, Frank. No, no, And there's also like, there was a mysticism to his childhood that I was always really fascinated right. with. You know, if you read the book, he used to read palms and he saw ghosts and all these things that as a Caribbean person, I relate to, you know, I, I saw ghosts, I, you know, I, I was all in on that stuff. And, you know, so, so it's interesting that, you know, it wasn't able to explore all that, but there's, what's I think great about nowadays is someone can leave a movie And instead of going, oh my gosh, I know way too much about this person I don't need to know anymore, they can get on their phone, they can look up things, they can take a deep dive. And so, yes, there are things that are missing, but there's also, I look at it as opportunities for people to to log on and to dig deeper and to explore the areas of Bob's life that maybe they didn't get to see a lot of.
0: So we've seen a lot of biopics over the years and... You know, a, a lot of them, I think, follow sort of uh, from a little boy to a grown up to, you know, in, in other words, I, you mentioned Cradle to the Grape. You guys chose a different way to approach this. It was really more of a slice of life, a slice of time in his life. Tell me about how how you structured the screenplay and, and why you decided to do it the way you did.
1: Yeah, we wanted to, um, you know, we want we start, you know, we all, I'm always a fan of, of starting anything hot, you know, which is to say, just grab the audience by the lapels and get their attention. So we said, all right, what's the what's the most pivotal moment in Bob's life? Certainly getting shot counts as that. And obviously, and also it was the, the catalyst for a time of enormous change in Bob's life, both for his career and in his spirituality. So, you know, when we looked at it as well, it also sort of fit the structure of the hero's journey. Where he's kind of that's the classic storytelling where he's, you know, something tragic happens to the hero. He has to leave his home, go somewhere else, to learn about himself, complete a series of tasks and then go back. And that fits so perfectly in that several year period from 77 on. And we could wow, this is just too good to 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 miss. So when we, you know, decided, yeah, we could start with a child, you know, we we had the opportunity to flash back to the childhood. So we didn't really yes. miss it. You, you flash back to some pivotal events, but that structure of, of the shooting into the exile and then the triumphant return was was kinda where we arrived and uh, it just seemed to be the best version of telling the
2: story. What was your process as writers right you know coming together to write this project? Um, I, I had a writing partner from for for many years and and uh, you know I'll, I'll write, you know, the first five pages of, of, mm-hmm. of, a, of a sitcom. You write the next five pages. What, what, what was your process together writing?
1: I'll let Frankie, I mean,
3: yeah. listen, you're working with Terry Winter, who is one of the all-time greats. You know, I, I hesitate to call him a legend because it makes it sound like he's in the past. He's <laughs> prolific and brilliant. And, you know, I, I would pinch myself for that every day. And yeah, so, please. you know, we had worked together on the LeBron James biopic, Shooting Stars, where Terry was a producer and and I was one of the writers on that. And so we had... know we had been personal friends for a while but we solidified kind of a a working vibe in that and we weren't writing partners there it was just really him almost in that godfather showrunner capacity of you know he was gracious enough to say hey i'll look at your drafts i'll you know you know i'll I'll help you kind of shape this and the thing that i learned the most from him was you know at some point he said you write great scripts remember the job is writing movies and no one writes movies better than Terrence Winter. You can watch uh, Wolf of Wall Street on your phone. And in 10 minutes, you're on page 30. You're like, how'd that happen, right? He's a master of transitions. And so a lot of it was, you know, me, I overthink. I'm going to get deep. I'm going to read 100 books. You know, I started reading the Bible twice a day. I still do that, by the way. And it's been an incredible transformation in my own life. But I just went deep and trying to be like Bob, get in his head. I lived in London. and And, and Terry would, again, take all that soup and we'd sit down and and we'd go back and forth with the drafts we'd go back and forth on scenes with ideas and and terry would just carve all that into a movie and that was that was really i think the best way to describe the dynamic
1: yeah i mean i my advice to other writers uh is is find a writing partner like frankie and then let him mm-hmm. uh, let him do his thing get out of his way And then come in and, you know, if you could be helpful, great. If not, just shut up and say thank you, (laughs) uh, which is a lot of what I did. Uh, You know, for me, you know, when I look at, especially if I'm adapting something, I look for what I call the movie moments. And, you know, the shooting, obviously, okay, well, obviously that has to be in there. And, the, and the, you know, the, the concert, you know, again, no brainers. But then things like that that were entertaining, you know, I, I love, you know, that flashback of the scene where the kids record for the first time. You yeah. know, obviously, Bob and Rita meeting for the first time. Things like these, this has to be, I want to see that as an audience member. So you get all those things, okay, we need to have this. And it's sort of like, that. always say, it's like that moment in Apollo 13 where they're stuck in space and they go, okay, we have all this junk. We have to now assemble this into something that makes a, whatever they were trying to make an air filter where we have all these disparate parts of a guy's story. How do these fit the best in the most satisfying way to tell this tale? Some of it you don't need, and you know, a lot of it you do. And, you know, just making sure all that stuff was there. Just again, from a, from an audience perspective, I know if it, if it made us, laugh or cry or gasp or sing along, then that had to be in the movie and that was usually the gauge. And you know, we got it together, assembled it and carved it out. And you know, took a couple of drafts and but I think probably maybe we only did two two drafts before we got our director attached, which was great. Two or three maybe. Yeah.
0: Which hmm. is by the way, to chime in on what uh Frank said, uh all hail Terrence Winter. Oh, the great please, Terrence thank Winter. No. Too,
1: way too kind.
0: Huge, huge fan. Huge Thank fan. We're so, so excited to get you on the show. Um, so Bob Marley was Rastafarian, and I knew very little about Rastafari but the, the spirit of the religion, I think, is what affected me so much from the movie, this idea of oneness. Uh, this idea of unity. And just as Jamaica was on the brink of civil war in 1976, it feels like America is so divided right now. And some oneness could really help all of us. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Which is why, you know, it's funny, you know, Frank, you said you pitched this 18 years ago and it wasn't the right time. You know, whether or not you believe in uh, everything has a time and place. Boy, we, it, if there was ever a time we need this message, it is now, right now. So uh, it, it, maybe it wasn't right eighteen years ago, but for for this time period, absolutely. I, and I think I really think audiences are responding to that. I mean, I've gotten emails from people who said that you know they, it's more about the movie itself and the entertainment of it. It's just it was just a positive message, and it was just a it was just a really feel good. Uh, experience and to walk out of the theater feeling like, wow, maybe there is, there is hope. Uh, yeah. and, you know, we are, it's yeah. I mean, God, the guy, Bob's music just resonates with people all over the world. And you hear, you hear those songs and you just right away, you get it, you feel good. And, you know, just sort of, I defy people to listen to that music without kind of, you're going to start bopping your head and thinking and, and, and just feeling that vibe. And it's, it's a peaceful, loving, inclusive one. And it's, and it's great.
3: And I'm sitting here wishing that there was a musician who could take all of our political leaders, bring them up on the stage and have them hold hands, right? That's the moment that we're at. And, you know, again, props to Ziggy, because 2018, when he, you know, said, hey, I'm ready to do this, it it was a divided time then as well, right? But 2024 was like, hold my beer. Let me show you what divided really is. So, you know, (laughs) I think it's gotten worse, unfortunately. But as Terry said, hopefully this this is a reminder that there is a unity to us, that we are all one people. We should not let... Labels and and all these you know political views divide that humanity. Right, it's okay to have differences, but man, you know we we got to figure this thing out.
2: Well, that's why I think the movie is so important because of what his message was. Because I started to think as um, Terry, I grew up around the same time you did, so. I think of some of the artists, you know, like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and all these mm-hmm. protest songs that sure. came out of that era. You know, Barry McGuire, The Eve of Destruction and, yeah. and, and music like that. But nobody ever had an impact like Bob Marley had. Nobody right. brought two warring factions together on a stage to shake hands. You mm-hmm. know, our artists sang about it. And 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 I'm not faulting them at all right, because sure. the the message that they were singing about was very important. But nobody was as remarkable as Barb Marley. Absolutely, and, and nobody nobody
1: walked the talk. Uh, he he got in there. I mean, literally, almost lost his life, and then came back and did that. I mean, any any rational, sane person would have left and never come back. And. No, Terry? Uh, you know, it's he, I mean, it's just absolutely astounding what this man did. Go ahead, Frank, sorry.
3: No, no, I was saying, uh, Some you said in the beginning, you're like, you know, it's one thing to have a point of view and be like, I'm championing this idea. It's another thing to do that after you get shot. You know what I mean? Right. The fact that he, you know, felt the pain and still got up the next day. That's something, again, Terry and I were so inspired by in going through this road of like, oh yeah, no, this man was really, truly willing to give his life for, for others and for this message. So Kingsley Benadair gives a titanic
0: performance in this movie. I, I mean, looks like Marley, accent perfect. Um, talk about him being the guy to to speak your dialogue, to to interpret what you wrote.
1: It didn't. It didn't feel like an actor to me, uh, honestly. And I've said this to people too. This is as close as you're ever going to get to seeing Bob Marley perform. Uh, yeah, it just. It just. It really. I had to. Remind myself that this wasn't, you know, not documentary for I'm not crazy, but clear it was he was so he's so authentic and so real that it kind of took what we wrote to a to a different level. Uh, You know, really, uh, it just it just felt so natural. It felt, uh, yeah, just felt like uh, like reality to me. What, What what did you feel, Frank, when you saw him? Oh
3: man, listen! I've seen so many bad Caribbean impressions from the old days of no <laughs> dishes. But I love Cool Runnings. Right, Cool Runnings is a great film. But you know what I mean? The accents didn't really do us right. Um, and I and don't I ruin think... it for me. I love that. I know. There you go. <laughs> but to see, you know, the authenticity, the time they put in to learn this, and and again, props to the studio as well for not putting subtitles. You know, there's so many times where it break my heart. Uh, you know, I'm like, oh man, come on, two Jamaican lines—they're gonna put subtitles on it. I watched the, I watched some of these Irish films, and I don't understand one word that they're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and those no Guy Ritchie
0: movies—I don't even know what's happening.
3: Come on, man. By the way, Banshees of Inisherim—I love Banshees of Inisherim. I don't understand what they said up until now, right? Like, come on, <laughs> great film, one Oscars. I had no idea. So I really gotta applaud that. And, and again, I know that that probably meant that. People took away 60% of dialogue, 70% of the dialogue. But it it just, again, there was no filter in between the words and and the emotions and the audience. And again, I think if if I've ever seen a movie that was built for an audience, it's been this. I've been in theaters where people were singing along, where, you know, all that. And you go, man, like that, I was so proud that these words were just said with such care, with such authenticity. Even the bit players, you know, some of the band members are actually children of the actual band members playing them. Wow. So you get a whole other level of authenticity.
2: That I was going to ask you, so some of the musicians were, at, were actual mu- musicians?
3: Yes, ma'am, yeah. 100%. Great. Great. So his relationship
0: with uh, Rita was very much at the, at the heart of the movie. And they have that emotional argument where she says the message has become the man. Uh, which I think is so powerful and so true. Describe sort of that sequence, writing it and and writing that relationship.
1: Uh, yeah, I'll let you take this, frank oh. you're you were the the Bob Marley uh, expert going into this
3: for sure, man. so yes, they had a, a very interesting, complicated relationship and what i think was so beautiful about them is that there is there was this real love story and there was also this mission that was bigger than them right it was almost like two soldiers you know falling in love and and having to go to battle and so what i think was really interesting and you you talk about you know the man and the mission and the message and the man is you know, Bob was a man, right? So Bob was dealing with all the emotional things. She was a wife. She was a person dealing with all of these emotional roller coasters and all the pitfalls of fame. And, you know, a man who, who came from a world that few of us can really understand, right? It, it's one thing to say I was born poor in America. It's one thing to say I was born poor in Jamaica with no running water, right? Where, where you know, again, violence and, and and you know, all the terrible things. And yet this man saw light, right? Th- this man saw beautiful things in you know, in Jamaica is one of the most special and incredible places in the world. Even though he was in a tumultuous time, he realized that if you're next to the woman you love, you don't care about the thread count of the sheets. You don't care about if you have air conditioning or power or running water. So the fact that someone was able to see beauty and 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 you know in all of this sadness and and to balance that relationship of like, okay, man, how do you? Even with cancer, even with the stress of being on the road, even with the complexities of their relationship, are we able to hold on to something bigger than ourselves? Are we able to to come together and find common ground and put our you know put our differences aside and, and again, they were real they're real you know again, real people real emotions. So I think the message in the man that that kind of sums up you know, th- it's that suffering. it's he's able to go through that. And to come out the other side because he has something bigger than his own legacy, something bigger than his own ego, something bigger than his own recording career, right? And that's that's what I think is unique about Bob Marley compared to almost any other artist that you can name.
1: And that that relationship was was obviously complicated, uh, you know. And I, I always liken it to you know a, you know a president and a first lady. You know, I won't name any particular ones, but you know, where at, at a certain point you go, you know, we're a team, and. We've almost transcended the relationship. Our image, the things we do, the way we affect people is more important than us personally. I think Rita got there first and sort of understood that. And then, but that's a big part of that scene where she's sort of breaking this down for Bob. It's not about the parties and the rock star lifestyle. It's the other thing, too. I mean, this guy was a rock star. So to be able to do this through the distractions and not to say he was perfect, obviously, we allude to dalliances and there's no secret that uh you know the two of them had uh affairs and and uh you know and a very complicated time but, i mean that's has to be almost true of any anybody who's in that situation but to, to be able to withstand that and understand that that what they mean to the world uh is bigger than the both of them uh you know it's really a testament to to so not only Rita but but to the team the both of them for understanding that and be able to withstand all of the other nonsense that goes with starting.
3: And I think, you know, just to put a button on that too, I think w- what Bob doesn't get enough credit for, in my opinion, is the family he left behind, <laughs> right? He is left behind an incredible, Absolutely. incredible family. They've, they've accomplished things and their own merit. They've, they've you know, they've carried his legacy. They've, um you know, they've done their own music. They've done their own charity, you know, fashion, everything, but he's built an incredible, incredible family. And a lot of that was... You know from miss rita and from you know bob and and the foundations that they laid
2: you know i was so surprised that and i completely forgot that he passed away at 36. it's, it's i didn't realize that, that he was so it. young
1: yeah i mean it's funny when we were kids you think 36 is old until you you almost you know you start you start growing up he was a child I mean, he didn't even get started I mean, you can imagine had he lived, you know, another forty years, uh, but to to have an impact that to this day still resonates, you know, for somebody thirty six years old is pretty. It, it's alternately awe inspiring and 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 terribly, terribly sad, obviously.
2: You know, you were making a joke about being younger and thinking 36 is old. I, I remember years ago, I I did stand-up, and I remember being at a comedy club, and a friend of mine was on stage, and he said to the audience, I turned 36 today. There's a lot of young people in the audience, and they applauded. <laughs> <laughs> you made it. 36, yeah. Know, yeah, it is.
1: Uh, everything is is relative. <laughs> so you've got that haunting image
0: of of young Bob Marley surrounded by the burning field it's it's recurring in the film and then the man on horseback saying it's time to come home tell me about what's your interpretation of of that in other words what what were you considering I think it had something to do with his fate am I right yes uh,
3: yes, it, yes. That. no there's there's a uh, so you know there's a couple of things going on one is you know, Bob was mixed race. Bob's father was, as he talks about, you know, a white man that he really didn't know. And so there's a part of him that was wounded throughout his life of, of you know, this search for identity, this search for, you know, the father, that you know, the, the the stone that the builder refused, you know, the, the his father was a builder, literally, right? His father had Marley construction. And so he was, you know, he was searching for that father figure, which he found in his faith through... Emperor Heli Selassie so you see that that you know the idea of the burning bush and and being afraid and and this this sort of ghost, this man chasing him that you're like, oh, is that his father? And then you realize that wait a second, by the end of the movie, it's his spiritual father that has manifested that. And and you know, like they say, when when your family reject you, Rastafari accept you. And so he was able to find that that spiritual fatherhood and and that path and that identity through his faith and the ring. Which again, a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, the ring that was given to Bob is has been said was passed down from King Solomon, who was the the last king of of you know Judah and Israel. And it was a physical piece of Saint King Solomon's ring that had been passed down through the Queen of Sheba, through the uh the royal line, to Ali Selassie, to his um his son, who was in exile in London, and then gave that to Bob. So I've always found it fascinating that. Here's a man who had great faith and was reading stories in the same Bible and same Torah that we all read, and then for that to become actual physical, like yo man, you are the lineage. You are gonna pass on this physical artifact. Um, it just it just blows my mind. And you talk about someone who was able to find his place and his identity and his you know his father. It's just it's it gets me every time.
1: So, um, there, there's an early photograph, uh, in the film where he shows Rita, he says, this is my father. And it's, it's that man in, in, on horseback. And as Frankie said, and that was his real father, And that was, I think the only photograph he ever had of him. And at the end that, that father figure on horseback is now morphed into a, the different image um, yeah. the faith-based highly yeah. Selassie image.
0: Hmm. What was it like showing the movie, the finished movie to the family for the first time?
1: I I was not there for that, uh, Frankie. I, but, you may know more about this than I do.
3: You know, Miss Rita was in tears. She loved it. Um, Chris Blackwell was there, and and you know, we got reports, you know, from his best friend that that he loved it. And, you know, I think the fact that they were able to see it in Jamaica with a Jamaican audience, you know, everyone's a little nervous, right? Everyone's like, if they get the accent wrong, if, if the audience turns on you in Jamaica, you don't read about it in the critics. You're going, you're going to see a bottle hit the screen, you know what I mean? So there was that mm-hmm. kind of like, is this, you know, what's going to happen? Is this going to disrupt? And the fact that everyone in Jamaica loved it, the fact that, you know, Mama Rita, that Chris, that the different factions were were feeling mm-hmm the vibe and, and, and felt honored and, and loved and respected and seen, you know, again, I, I think it's just a, a tribute to Ziggy's vision and a tribute to, you know, thank God that this film has brought more unity and not, you know, cause when, as you guys know, like certain biopics come out and you just read about this one hating it and that one hating it and all this kind of thing, the fact that this movie has been able to bring even more unity to, uh, to the different players that are represented, I think is, is again, a testament to the message.
0: Well, listen, guys, this has been this has been great. Uh, You know, it's one thing to have written a big, gigantic hit movie. Uh, The cool thing is you're making a movie uh, that makes the world, I think, a better place. Unity, oneness. We need that more than ever. I'm glad so many people are seeing it. And and really congratulations on the film. And thank you very much for doing this.
1: Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure.
3: Yeah, man. Thank you guys very much.
0: There you have it. Uh, Great movie. Great movie. Really cool to get Terrence Winter on the show. I mean, Frankie Flowers is fantastic. Terence Winter is like all hail. Oh
2: man. When you told me that we were getting them on the show, especially Terrence, I was like, oh my God. Like the Terence Winter? The <laughs> Terrence like, Winter, yes. Yeah,
0: I by nice. the way, I felt it was weird because when I introduced him, I called him Terry. And I immediately I almost stopped the interview and said, I I'm sorry, am, am I allowed to call you Terry? But he's he seemed okay with it. And Frank Flowers was calling him Terry, so I thought I, I guess I'm in the clear.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh I I mean, I'm so glad he he was as cool as I hoped he would be. Yeah. You know, when you when you have this kind of like respect for somebody and you love their work. Um I could tell right away because before we got on camera we, and he was trying to figure out his his headphones <laughs> yes. and everything, he was goofing around and saying he was a doofus. And I said, just the fact that he used the word doofus, I knew I was gonna like Oh him. yeah,
0: oh yeah. I You know, that movie, I walked out of there, and it ends tragically, of course. Uh, Bob Marley died very young. Um, But I walked out of there very emotionally charged. This idea that, and I I don't go anymore, but I went for a long time to a church called Agape. And my minister, uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Beckwith. Would talk about oneness, would talk about we're all connected, that God, that spirit, that universal intelligence is flowing through and as uh, and with everyone, so that we're all connected. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is really my takeaway from that movie is that especially now, God, if we could embrace some kind of unity, some kind of oneness, some kind of togetherness, some sort of we're all in this together concept. Um, the world would be a much better place. And I'm so encouraged by the number of people that are going to see the movie.
2: Yeah, you know, you, it, it, I get this feeling, this, you know, this fantasy of getting like a group of, you know, you know polarized people together in theaters all over the country yeah. and have them watch this movie to show them, you know, what it really is all about and what we can do. Um, as an as as a country and you know just in the world you yeah know? yeah because so I'll because he, he had such an impact uh you know
0: we talk about the divisions and the polarization in America right now this is really interesting so two years ago I got together with my four fraternity brothers that I was closest to am closest to and We never talked about politics. I know for a fact that at least three of those guys are supporters of the former president. And it never came up because none of us ever talked about it. And we got along great. And I just wonder if that's something... Now, we talked about this. You're very confrontational. Um, Would you be able to be friends with somebody who supported the former president Um, if it's not something they talked about.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, one of the guys I play golf with, um, he's like, thinks that the former president is the greatest president in his his lifetime.
0: Right. Right.
2: (laughs) You know? Um, and I, his wife is like me, so she doesn't agree with him. Um, but you know, I've spent a lot of time with this guy and we do not talk about it.
0: Yeah. I think that's. We We just don't.
2: We can't, we can't, because I'm not going to change his mind. He's not going to change my mind. And, um,
0: that's where we we, are in the world. No, everybody's got their mind made up. It's rough. I know my brother voted for the former president. Yeah. It's like, what are you going to do? And I have in-laws,
2: I have in-laws that, you know, that have voted, you know, for him. So, yeah. And I love them and, you know, I'm not going to not talk to them. I mean, I love them, you know?
0: Yeah. I think we need a little bit more of that in the world. A little bit more acceptance. Right. So, uh, well, there you have it. Don't forget. (laughs) Oh, you know what? Before I forget, this is the big thing that I forgot to tell you. This is episode 300 of the Culture Pop podcast.
2: Wow. Oh, wait a minute. I have something to show. Oh, that's
0: right. That's right. Yeah. Episode 300. Who thought it was going to go this long? Right,
2: well, in celebration of that, hey! Look what came to my house. Personally delivered. Personally delivered. So I have to. Right, so I have to tell the story real quick. So you came to my house with Juan, yep. with all of the new equipment. Yep. And it was raining, and you walked in empty-handed, and I'm and I'm thinking to myself. I cannot believe that he's at my house after all this time. This has been going on for probably five months, six months. Yeah, yeah. That you've been promising that you're going to mail me the sweatshirt. <laughs> and and he's actually come. He came to my house and he doesn't have it. So you, if there was an award yes. for best friend who faked faked that he gave me something, yes. you would have gotten you would have gotten the award for that because you were like, oh my God. and I totally bought it. And I was, and, and, and then even Tom said, Oh my God, if there was ever a day <laughs> for you to bring the sweatshirt. And then you guys had walked into my office ahead of me. And I guess maybe it was in with the packaging of some of the equipment. Yep. And then you said, look what I got. And there it was. <laughs>
0: See, I've always told you my first love was acting.
2: Well, I don't know. I think you may need to reconsider because it was so real. Thank you.
0: I hope I won an award for that performance. <laughs> um, so episode 300, thank you very much for being out there for as long as you have been. If you love the show, recommend the show to a friend you think will like it um, and obviously do all the stuff. Uh you know, follow our YouTube channel, uh, follow us on Apple, Spotify. We appreciate all that stuff. Sue, it's great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on episode 301 of the Culture Pop Podcast.